Hi, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 37 of the Yacking Podcast. And this is the place where we talk about life, business, and much more. And we bring you tips and ideas for the changing world we find ourselves in. As always, we have interesting guests for you. Today is no exception, but first I'd like to welcome Kathleen, and she will introduce our guest. Hello, Kathleen. Nice to see you here again. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Peter. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining us. And we so appreciate you tuning in. And we also appreciate your comments. So please keep them going. And Peter, you have a little disclaimer that you want to share with everybody before we get started. Absolutely. Absolutely right. As always, Kathleen keeps me on track so well. Thank you, Kathleen. We need to say to you that we're talking legal matters today, but nothing presented here is legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, talk to your own attorney, lawyer, legal advisor. Also, some of the topics we're going to discuss are very topical and may be uncomfortable, depending on your opinion, for some uh, some consumers. So be warned. Nothing bad, just opinions. Back to you, Kathleen. So thank you, Peter. Yes. Yeah, so today we are welcoming back uh, an individual that we uh, have great respect for and welcome Barrett Baldwin, who is a paralegal. And he is, uh, he was in a previous interview with us. And we have decided to create a series with Barrett because of the such valuable information that he has. And uh, today will be no exception. So welcome, Barrett. Hi, how are you two doing today? Great, Good, thank you. you. So Barrett, uh, just to refresh our viewers and listeners' minds, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? And uh, we'll take it from there. Uh, as stated, my name is Barrett Bodway, and I'm a licensed paralegal in the province of Ontario. I would refer the viewers back to the previous interview where we get into the dirty details of what that all entails. Um, but I am really excited to talk about the topic that uh, we've selected for today because it's a very current and pressing matter. You're absolutely right. It's current and pressing and uh, dividing the population quite severely, nearly as bad as politics is dividing the population to the south of our border. So I assume that the Quarantine Act was designed to keep sick people away from healthy people and not to impose house arrest on healthy people. But uh, in a previous conversation, you, you were sort of telling me that I might not quite have that right. So, so please enlighten our audience for us, Barrett. Yeah, so the Quarantine Act, uh, the first thing to note about it is that it's a federal piece of legislation. However, constitutionally speaking, um, there are only certain things that each part of government, the federal and provincial governments can provide legislation on. And so the provincial government actually has jurisdiction over legislation of healthcare matters. What that means is that if the federal government were to design a law that spoke to healthcare matters with a very narrow exception uh, that we might touch on a little bit later, that law would actually be deemed unconstitutional because in the constitution, it prescribes healthcare matters to the jurisdictions of the province. Mm -hmm. So the quarantine act was not actually designed to have any effect on its own citizens. What it was designed for was to control the flow of what they call travelers in the piece of legislation. So, 
it was meant to so in the case where you have an unknown pathogen that originates in another country the idea there was that if we can control the flow of people at the borders of the country then we could possibly prevent these pathogen from entering in and creating spread within the community mm -hmm. right. right so would there have been a better way to implement this quarantine and did was was this an overreaction well as uh, we just discussed the government had all the legislative tools that they needed to basically have people who were coming into the borders at any point in time required to um, go into a quarantine. And we saw examples of this when they were bringing back citizens from the cruise ships. They brought them over into Trenton and they had them in a 14-day military quarantine. So I would say that, yeah, absolutely, there was a better way to implement this. They had all the legislative tools at the time. The only possible problem that I might be able to say with that is um, the control of flow in between the borders of each province, which would again be federal jurisdiction and yet subject to the Quarantine Act. However, controlling the flow of people between provinces is a little trickier than controlling the flow through international borders because generally you have things like airports or ports of sea that come into Canada, those are strictly under federal jurisdiction, which is what the Quarantine Act was designed for. Uh, the, I don't know that maybe the reaction to it, I don't know if it was an overreaction, I would actually argue that it was an underreaction, that they didn't do what they needed to do at the pertinent time in order to prevent the contagion from getting into the communities locally here. Okay, I, I hear what you say on that. Well, I put overreaction in <clears throat> when I was thinking about this because, to my mind, subsequent to that initial opportunity to use the Quarantine Act as it was designed, the, what's happened to the citizens is, is, in my mind, an overreaction. And just picking up on what you're saying with the difference between federal and provincial powers, I see there's been a misuse of power here on the provincial and municipal levels of government. And is all of what they're imposing strictly legal? Well, Peter, I will tell you that what I've seen in terms of how the legislature has been operating through this period of time, that having some questions and feeling a little concern about how some of the laws are being created now, it is concerning to me as a legal advocate because a lot of the due process has effectively been removed. Now, if you're passing laws to hand out funding for people who need it uh, because they're affected in COVID some way, then, you know, that's fine. Get rid of the due process under the, the because that's what the emergency protections are there for. But when you're talking about passing pieces of legislation that have to do with like residential tenancy law, as we saw with Bill 184 in Ontario recently, or that order in council uh, regarding the banning of a bunch of different style of uh, guns, those are concerning things to me for sure. Now, uh, as far as an abuse of the legal process, I like to sort of think of any piece of legislation as a superpower. You know, you can either use it for good or evil. <laughs> yeah. 
for sure. Right. So, yeah. so Barrett, who can create mask bylaws and how? That's actually kind of interesting. And uh, at least for a legal nerd like myself, <laughs> um, municipalities don't actually have any authority to create laws at all because they're not mentioned anywhere in the constitution. Only the provinces have the authorities to do that. So what each province has, and in particular Ontario, is a Municipalities Act, which delegates the authority to create bylaws for local control and order to an identified municipality. And they're all in that act. It's a massive piece of legislation. So the other part of authority that comes into creating a mask bylaw is the authority that came in under the um, Emergency Measures and Civil Protection Act. So those two acts combined create the authority that give municipalities the ability to create bylaws on not only any matter, but in particular, and in this instance, mask bylaws. Okay, okay. So you, you've answered what I was going to ask you, what gives them the power, but I'm just going to pick up on that. If we look at masks in particular, and this is not my opinion, this is having done a considerable amount of research on this issue, there is no scientifically proven field trial to show that under scientifically controlled conditions and in the field, masks are effective at stopping the virus. There's indications they can stop droplets, especially under these nice photographs we see in the media in laboratory conditions. But going back about 15 years to flu epidemics, various doctors have conducted some trials and the results are totally inconclusive. There is strong evidence that wearing a mask can be harmful to a lot of people, not just those with compromised health, for all sorts of reasons. And this has been, there's anecdotal evidence from nurses and people who have been wearing masks for a long time. So how can an authority force us to do something that is probably not very effective, certainly not proven to be effective, and almost definitely could be harmful to our health? That doesn't sound right to me. Well, I think um, how is based strictly on the legislative regime, right? They have all the pieces there, and then they can just say, okay, let's do this. Um, I think more along the lines, though, is the question of whether they should have or not. And sort of speaking back to what you were mentioning about the bits and pieces of scientific evidence throughout. I saw an interesting video the other day um, with a prominent well-known celebrity scientist, Bill Nye, where he has this mask on and he's trying to blow a candle out. And the purpose of this demonstration was to show that, you know, the, uh, that there was an, an effective resistance between the mouth and the candle that would prevent the candle from blowing out. However, what struck me while I was viewing that video was that if that's the case, and I don't believe that the video was doctored in any way, but I, my mind immediately went to, well, these people who have been complaining about being, it being difficult to breathe, because if you can't blow through it, then you can't suck through it either. That's right. Right. Yeah. So I understand that this subject is really contentious. And what I would say is that the mask bylaws that are in place, there is a provision in them that does allow people 
who may have some kind of medical condition or breathing problem not to wear the mask. And for any uh, places of business in particular, because they're the ones that interact with the public the most, who might want to question an individual about that, I would strongly caution them against it because it's actually a violation of that individual's human rights. Absolutely. But Absolutely. having said that though, Barrett, isn't it also true that a business can, uh, can decide not to provide business to a customer if they're not wearing a mask, even though they might have a medically sound reason not to be wearing that mask. It's up to the individual business owner to make the decision. Isn't that right? They can't well, deny them, basically. Yeah, and so what I've seen in a lot of the uh, bylaws is that that provision, ex that there is something in there that says that they don't really want the businesses policing this. Mm -hmm. Of course, then if you turn around and you look online, you find all kinds of videos where you have, you know, staff or employees of a business going up to an individual and asking them, you know, oh, where's your mask? And usually there's some type of an altercation and people are yelling at each other and this type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So under the current state, of human rights law in Ontario, technically speaking, no, the business does not have the right to refuse you service if you're not wearing the mask. Mm -hmm. However, what they are required to do, they, they can refuse to let you into the store if you're not wearing the mask, but they can't refuse you service. So that goes from, <laughs> Kathleen's tilting her head at me like that doesn't make any sense at all and you know she's totally right what a business has a requirement to do is to accommodate any type of protected ground so if somebody does have a legitimate reason not to wear a mask the business can refuse to let them into the store however the business must come up with an alternative method of serving that person up to the point of undue hardship, mm -hmm. which could mean that they have a, a, you know, the person write down a list of what they need and then one of their employees goes around, puts everything in the cart and checks it out. So the entry to the store can be refused under the provision of the bylaw, but the store would still have to let the person shop there, which is I know it's it sounds strange, but that is yeah. technically sense. the current state of the law is. Mm -hmm. I, I find it interesting on that one that Walmart, Lowe's, and another major chain in the USA have they've got fed up with altercations, as you said, between customers and staff. And a, there was one incident where a very irate customer pulled a gun out and threatened a staff member. So that, that's a, a little excessive, which we hope wouldn't happen here. But they've said, you know, we can't risk our staff and it's not our job to police this. So we are no longer making it mandatory for customers to wear masks. The same in the UK, three biggest supermarket chains, Tesco, I can't remember the other two, same thing. They've said it's not our job. And a lot of the police there have said it's not our job either. So if uh, people are reported for not wearing masks, just uh, get on with it. We're not going to do anything about it. So it seems to be quite divisive. I, I also believe there's another um, area where we can refuse to wear masks, and that is if it goes against our creed. I was listening to an interview with a legal guy the other day. He says he's a constitutional lawyer. And he said, <clears throat> under the terms of the charter, you can't be forced to do something if it's not harmful to others, if it goes against your creed. You don't have to define what your creed is. So that's an interesting one. Mm. Kathleen, you had some, another question for Barrett. 
I do. I was just wondering, you know, Barrett, I wonder, and many people are wondering why were masks not made mandatory at the beginning of this, uh, of this pandemic when it was at a catastrophic, you know, it was a, deemed a catastrophic situation. And now that it's under, it's in decline, now they're instituting this, this mandatory mask policy. This is an effect of the poor management of the message right from the beginning of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason why you're having so much pushback now, uh, whereas if this had been instituted near the beginning, people would have been more inclined to just say, yeah, okay, fine, that makes sense. Um, it's, I don't know why, they would necessarily have decided to implement this now. And I think that it makes even less sense now since the whole physical distancing measures have been drilled into everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. And now they're saying, okay, well, you know, if we're six feet feet apart, that helps stop the spread of the virus. But now we have to be six feet apart and wearing a mask. So people are wondering why we're all standing six feet apart now. (laughs) So I think that, again, it was... It was a problem with how the message was delivered. There was no consistency in the messaging at any point in time. For the longest time, they were saying, no, no, don't bother wearing masks or anything like that. And that was the part that stuck in everyone's head. But as the situation carried forward, you know, policy decisions made that seemed to, were made that seemed to contradict the previous stance of the officials making the policies themselves. So frankly, the reason why there's so much lashback right now is because people are confused. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know what they should or shouldn't be doing. And they're already, we're already all really stressed out because of this. So, you know, our lives have been irrevocably altered. So that causes a certain amount of, uh, like a, a primal reaction, you know, a fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. And people are more likely to have adverse reactions to being told what to do when they feel that they should have the personal executive decision making themselves to do what they need to do for themselves and their loved ones. Absolutely. And and the big question in a lot of people's minds is, because it's not it's not having the catastrophic consequences as Kathleen mentioned, and in many countries it's no more serious than the 2017 flu epidemic. So the big question in a lot of people's mind is why this uh, excessive government control now and never before for something that, in real terms, is is not killing the people that it was expected to kill, and statistics yesterday show that the the death rate in the UK from all causes for the last five weeks has been lower than the five week than the average for the last five years. So again, that indicates that this thing is on its way out, but we still have all these controls. Uh, So that's an interesting one. And I think why a lot of people are, as you say, confused. And I think there's a rising tide of opposition to what's going on. And we can understand why it leads to the conspiracy theories because, uh, yeah, there's lots of things out of 19, the George Orwell's 1984 here. <laughs> so, so Barrett, how do people protect themselves? Um, oh, this was, I, I'm jumping ahead. You've, I think you've answered this fairly well. 
if people want to stand for what they believe are their rights and refuse to wear a mask and get picked up by the police, how do they protect themselves? Well, there are sort of two levels to this, right? Normally, bylaws are enforced by um, by bylaw enforcement officers, or there's a technical term in the Provincial Offenses Act, provincial um, a provincial officer, right? So, I think one of first and foremost, the one thing that people have to keep in mind is that if they are going out somewhere and they are being called out because they aren't wearing a mask, you know, just don't start yelling and screaming in people's faces because that just makes you look ignorant and ridiculous. Uh, You know, you need to keep your cool and just explain the situation. Say, look, you know, I'm not wearing a mask because I have a disability, for example. May I request that you tell me what forms of accommodation you're providing for people like me. You know, the problem is, is that everyone wants to get on a soapbox and nobody thinks that they're wrong. But we just need to be civil with each other, right? If you have a, a, a reason that you can't be wearing a mask, whether or not it's in a disability or it goes against some kind of belief of yours or any of those types of things, you can't be discriminated against by your beliefs either right? So just explain to the person that, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this. I have, you know, either political or ideological reservations against it. And reasonably so, that person, or in this case, more likely a business, should be willing to provide you with some kind of accommodation. The other thing is here too that we have to consider is that the world has changed a lot since then. I mean, there's so many different avenues where you don't even have to go into a store anymore. You can just go online and order your groceries and have someone come and drop them out to your car. So, you know what, if from a legal point of view, if you have a stance against wearing a mask, try exploring some of these other options, right? Sure. Uh, don't get angry and start yelling and stuff because then you're crossing into a threshold of possible criminality where you're you know causing a disturbance the police may be called you don't want to get a criminal charge for something silly like this no i agree absolutely but that's that's really good advice so barrett I'm thank curious. you uh, Kathleen, I'm back curious. to you you got something else there for barrett yes <laughs> i'm just curious about something barrett if if somebody were and i've i've heard this on the news quite some time ago where a family was was ticketed for being out uh, at a park, for instance. This was back before before everything was open, and they were, I think, they were issued an eight hundred dollar fine or something like that. And if the if, if people in that case wanted to push back, and um, do they have a case and to to do that? What platform? I believe I remember the uh, specific instance that you're referring to, and. I would argue that yes, they absolutely have a case. Um, the Emergency Measures and Civil Protection Act, frankly, is not a very well-drafted piece of legislation. I actually had the opportunity to see what was being written on some of those tickets. And one of the tenants of our legal system here is that a person should know what they're, what they're being accused of. Well, when I look at the section on the ticket, it says that basically 
you are being accused of contravening a this other section of the act and then when you go to the other section of the act there's some 15 or 16 different things sitting there so you know how am i as a as a legal advocate supposed to know what i'm defending against yes i can sit there and put it together through all the context and circumstances and stuff but that's not how the legal system works a client the the state is under the obligation to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. If they're accusing you of something, they need to produce all of that information to you. So, yeah, the the as far as it goes for um, that specific situation, though, I would argue that because the recreational facilities were closed, but they were in the parking lot, that the parking lot wouldn't be classified as a recreational facility and I'm sure the prosecutor would come back with arguments that well it's adjacent to and part of the property there'd be some back and forth that's the really interesting thing about this whole thing is that none of this is tested in a court yet so we're going to have all these tickets coming through and there will be case law developed uh, on all of these seemingly simple bylaw tickets the good thing about that is the next time it will it will provoke the legislature to make changes to the legislation to more precisely target the problem that they're trying to address. And as the rest of our legal system has developed throughout the years, it'll keep getting better and better to a point where hopefully the needs of the many will be met without impinging upon the rights mm -hmm. of the individual. Of the individual, yeah. Good, good point. Good point. Uh, we're certainly going to get you back on another episode to talk about that Emergency Powers Act. But a very quick question. Surely anything that controls emergency powers is for emergencies. How can you justify an emergency four months down the track? Surely that's now no longer an emergency. Well, you see, the section that provides that power is literally based on the opinion of the okay. premier or uh, the lieutenant governor, I believe. So okay. what you have is a legislative regime that is based on the opinion of one or a few individuals. And now I understand too that there's actually been an additional piece of legislation that has made it so that emergency powers can be implemented without the state of emergency being in effect and that's one of the more recent pieces of Ontario legislation that has either come up or yeah. will come up for royal assent and something that a lot of civil liberties advocates are questioning actually the uh, MPP uh, the conservative MPP yeah. Cambridge voted against it on conscience that's right it was kicked out of caucus how yeah. democratic is that I know I know I know so we haven't got a lot of time left but a Quick one. Um, why is there so much difference in the in the bylaws in the different jurisdictions within the province? It seems to be different cases for each area. Uh, yeah. So a lot of that has to come from the fact that, uh, as I kind of briefly described before about the Municipalities Act and right. everything, uh, each municipality has the authority to draft its own bylaws, and they don't necessarily have to match from one jurisdiction to another. So that's really why it has turned into sort of this hodgepodge of different things. And you have, you know, different parts opening up um, 
the now a lot of the viewers may be questioning in their minds, right, that if the scientific evidence is there that demonstrates that this is an effective measure to be taken, well, how is it that the legislators over here can draft a different bylaw than the ones over here who might have a different bylaw, right? Um, so if the scientific evidence is solid, science is generally, when it's done properly, objective which means that any resulting policy decisions that derive from that science should be fairly consistent right across the board. So again, this just feeds into that mismanagement of the message. And Absolutely. The, you know, you're driving, say, between uh, London all the way over to Kingston one day. You may pass through 17 different uh, jurisdictions and, you know, Maybe doing something with the mask in one jurisdiction is okay, but then doing it in another jurisdiction is not okay. Un unlawful, and you could have bylaw called on you. And I think that feeds into the fear and confusion of the population. That's right. Surely it's discriminatory as well, because if you're in an industry that in in this part of the town or the province, you can be a hairdresser and be open for business. But if you go a kilometer across to your other branch, which is in a in a different jurisdiction and hairdressers are not allowed to operate, surely that's discriminatory. Well, and I think that raises another interesting question that may be better left for a, another topic but uh when we're creating all of these imaginary lines the borders and the boundaries and stuff what criteria are we using because effectively when you boil it down they are in fact quite arbitrary lines absolutely yeah i think we're running out of time barrett we need you to tell us how people can contact you if they need your services uh my number is 647-525-6829 and my email address is barrett.bodwain at gmail.com. Thanks, Barrett. I'm going to hand it back to Kathleen. I think she might have something else for you. No, I just wanted to thank you both for uh, joining us and thank all of you again. Uh, we will see you next time. Take care. Okay.